This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Stu Martin. Stu Martin is the head of performance strategy for British weightlifting. He was the team leader for one of England weightlifting's most successful Commonwealth Games of all time in Birmingham 2018, and is the team leader for Tokyo 2021 through one of GB's most successful Olympic cycles in weightlifting history. He is a coach for a number of Britain's leading weightlifters and is responsible for implementing British weightlifting strategy to develop lifters and coaches and grow the number of talented athletes involved in weightlifting in the UK. So welcome to the podcast, Stuart. It's great to have you on. Long time no see. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it must have been two or three years since we've, we've caught up properly, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so things have been going pretty well since then. So for those who haven't come across you within British weightlifting, Give us a bit of uh, your own kind of sporting journey. How did you get involved in sport as a youngster and how did that evolve into trying different things and ending up where you are today? <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, so I was one of those kids that loved sport, just played anything and everything I could really as a kid. Um, wasn't wasn't the best at all things. Um, so eventually I probably found my way into two, two key sports, I suppose, in my teens. Uh, basketball which was something I was I like to think I was reasonably good at from a UK perspective I would certainly not my stature and my build would have not stood up to anybody in the American collegiate system by any means but I did quite well in this country um, I had an American coach he was uh, the the father of my best mate at the time and um, he really inspired me and, and gave me a lot of the enthusiasm I have for, for just sport in general and, and coaching um, we did reasonably well at that, but at the end of the day, um, because of the nature of basketball in this country and the opportunities available, I was a rugby player at the same time and um, there were more opportunities available to me in rugby during that period. So um, I sort of committed myself, I suppose, at 16 to trying to see how far I could go in that. I had some great opportunities to experience what life was like in the Academy of Worcester um, through both the DICE programme there and um, some great coaches along the way. Um, and then off the back of that, I went to uh, Hartbury University um, again to try and further my rugby career as most young athletes who just don't quite make it at that premiership level do uh, to see where I could go. As almost every single s coach that's ever lived will tell you, um, I, I retired as a consequence of an injury. Um, I had a, a brachial plexus injury, which uh, finished me off and 
kind of really affected my relationship with rugby towards the end because I was really struggling to keep going and just couldn't couldn't stay fit enough for long enough to um, to be on the playing field. So eventually, I, I sort of reached the decision that I uh, I needed to step away. It wasn't good for my health, both physically or mentally. Um, and I started to look at what else was out there that I could do with the rest of my physical physical um, physically capable years with with at least ten left to go. I'd have, I'd have said probably at that point. Um, I got in touch with a few of my old teammates and old coaches and a few of them sort of said you know well you love you love your training you love your s stuff why don't you go down that route so I was on a degree which allowed me to do that in the third year um it was in the days when s degrees weren't really a thing they were sort of like a, a a bolt onto your degree um and I pursued it from there really and from that I fell into weightlifting because as you travel around as a young s coach as most of you listening will probably know um you you go where the work is and that's what you've got to do to to give yourself the best chance. But sometimes that means that pursuing a sport at the same time is is pretty challenging. Um, weightlifting offered me the opportunity to do that on my own. So um, that was my kind of journey initially into weightlifting. Um, when I kicked off, there was not a club for two hours in any direction close to me. So and I had about two p to rub together. So I. Um, couldn't afford the petrol to get to somewhere like uh, Empire in Bristol and decided I'd just try and learn myself. So I uh, tuned into early days of YouTube and um, watching watching Cal Strength videos as many, many weightlifting coaches or weightlifters out there do and um, tried to figure it out for myself for quite a long while, training on rusty bars that didn't spin in, you know, old school bodybuilding gyms because that was all that was available in my hometown at the time. Um, and then as I sort of went up and took my first role in SNC. Uh, they had the facilities to allow me to, to weightlift properly. Um, not the coaching facilities or support again. Again, it was a part of the country that probably wasn't very well supported from weightlifting's perspective back in whenever that was. Um, 2010s of some, of some point. Um, and yeah, I sort of pursued it forward from there really and just, just got myself stuck in, committed for about eight, eight, 10 years and sort of concluded with a um, couple of sort of national medals and that, that sort of thing, um, which for, for considering when I started, I look back on quite fondly, really, it got me out of a pretty negative place with, with, um, with rugby and injuries. It taught me to re-enjoy training and give me a bit of purpose. So yeah, that was, that was how I found myself there. Mm. So how did you uh, end up coming on board as a staff member at British Weightlifting, going from a, being an athlete and a lifter to, to being part of the, the organisation? So I, throughout obviously having to coach yourself, one of the things I did when I got down to Bournemouth um, was to, I thought, I need a group of people to train with here. I can't do this every day on my own. Um, it's too much hard work. So you were one of the people, Rob. Um, and we had, some, we had some plans, didn't we, to, to sort of build a bit of a club network between um, a local club and, and the university itself. Um, then you left and ran, ran off to, the, to, the, uh, to, to God's country. Um, and, and went back to your roots in Scotland, which I completely support. Um, and, and we kind of just built, built Bournemouth from there, really. So I suppose I was coaching uh, around my, my training. And then my day job was as a, as a S&C coach and later as a support services manager. So when British Weightlifting lost its funding in 2016-17, they um, 
the whole performance team was dismantled really. So um, Tommy, direct, uh, Tommy Director, Tommy Yule, who was the performance director at the time, took a job with athletics because the, the job that he was, he was in at that time, the funding had disappeared for it. Dan Wagner left his pathway manager and again followed Tommy to athletics for the same reasons. And they were left with um, a, couple of, only a couple of members of staff, but they were very, very thinly spread um, on the basis there wasn't very much money going around. They had a small amount of money for Sport England to try to do something with. And, and with that, they, they employed me as a bit of a jack of all trades, as a weightlifting coach, as a um, practitioner historically, and as a, um, someone that potentially could, could drive forwards a bit of a, a programming around the pathway. So that was that was kind of the the journey into that point um, on that on that route prior to my time at, at Bournemouth. I was up at Core Cambridge, which was one of the original SNC facilities, private SNC facilities in the UK. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, sadly, but um, I had some great opportunities to work with some some really interesting people there. Uh, it was sort of but both both clients and other coaches. So um, notably, probably Cole Chase, who's these days with the British Rowing Program, um, and uh, Andy Elkins, who's with British Swimming, um, as one of their lead SNC coaches. Um, on top of that, some other some other good characters like David Buckley, probably most of you would, wouldn't know, but he's he's now moved into teaching. But he, he came through the IS and, and boxing and, and those sorts of things years before. So, yeah, it was a really great development experience. It was largely rehab focused, so I learned I think a lot about that um, during that period of time, and then got to work with number of youth athletes through that period as an SNC coach as well. So some preparing for sort of European junior championships and things like that that were Cambridge based. And for anybody that's Cambridge based, they probably know there isn't there wasn't much over in that direction at that time in and around elite sports. It was a, a pretty niche facility. I don't think there's many like it since. Um, so yeah, it was it, it was a I've had quite a broad journey. I think I've been quite lucky to start right back at the bottom scraping for for a bit of money to you know, keep myself going. I was doing a little bit of shadowing and um, observation at, at um, Gloucester Rugby. Um, had a bit of opportunity there for for one summer um, alongside doing a lot of sort of glor- what I'd probably term now glorified personal training, pretending to be an SNC coach, but at the time really just working with members of the general public. And, and there's a lot of honour. It's it's an honourable profession, actually. I think um, people dumb down personal training too, too much. It's a great learning environment, I think, um, working with general public is not that much different from working with athletes still trying to learn how to help people develop habits and behaviors and change the way that they operate. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's, uh, that was again, another really eye opening experience for me, but it was hard, hard work getting up at that time of day and grinding, grinding my way through it. So I, I didn't have much, uh, didn't, I couldn't I couldn't sustain that for very long like most young SNC coaches can't um, so I had to start to look for something that, that could could fund fund me to to do it more full time um, so yeah that was that was the journey so far and then I suppose into British weightlifting I sort of progressed now through to through this cycle from sort of talent lead or talent manager overseeing the programs but without any UK sport funding to um, a successful period I suppose for the sport um, where we've tried to go back to our roots a little bit um, respect those that have really done the work on the ground and and get behind them and support them and help them fill the gaps that they they don't have um, we're lucky enough to have a group of athletes uh, three of three of the four who were sort of from the old world-class program and one of whom had has probably 
some pretty interesting potential um, in Emily Campbell. Interesting as me being conservative, she's got some pretty great potential, really, as most people would see, progressing to an international medal winning level in four years in weightlifting is nearly unheard of. Um, and yeah, on top of that, um, we've had a successful bid with UK Sport to, to get ourselves a progression budget. And um, that's really going to hopefully help revolutionise the, the way that, well, evolve what the sport has been able to do over the last four years and, and really cement it and grow some some better systems and processes that mean that performance is more of a um is more of an assurance than a than a than a bit of guesswork really I hope so talk us through your role now at, at British weightlifting what is being a performance pathway manager or a talent manager what does that involve it's as broad as it is long um I mean, every pathway manager across the system has a slightly different role because every sport is slightly different. I think that's the first thing to say. So my experience in weightlifting is probably not the average, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of coaching. It's a bit of leadership. It's a bit of um, sort of strategy leadership and process design. It's a bit of being an S&C coach. It's a bit of being a, budget psychologist and try and help people understand the sort of mindset that um is required in order to succeed in a sport it's a bit of lifestyle advice um and it's a bit of an operation again a, gl a glorified i like that term a glorified travel agent to be quite frank you you're organizing competitions and making sure that people can can get to get to where they need to get to and do what they need to do so very broad um and quite intense well you must have done a good job of uh travel logistics lately because you came home from the europeans with a with a very good result well, and a very good number of results didn't you we did we did we, i mean fantastic performances from the three girls that, that sort of went on to win medals there really and i think had it been another period of time and um so we hadn't been trying to train in a garage for the best part of the last nine months in zero degree temperatures through january i'd like to have thought that she'd have probably also been on that medal podium and if you take her results from um the world championships in 20 2019 it's a long time ago now um then she she should have potentially also won that that um 59 kilo class so yeah the three girls especially emily emily musket emily campbell some pretty trailblazing efforts really um you know first european champion for 25 years i think that kind of speaks for itself in terms of the standard and the, and the effort and the um, the work ethic that the girls have applied to, to this cycle um, as unfunded athletes, um, it's in, which is really interesting, I think, as, a, as an impact. Um, you'd have thought that you lose funding from UK sport and then you go on to do better in the next cycle. That's an odd one. Um, but I think that's real testament to the coaches and the athletes that have, have put the work into that that cycle to make sure that um, they, their ambitions aren't you know, their ambitions don't change. Um, they're not quitters. I think that gives me a lot of respect for them. Um, and yeah, I mean, anybody that follows Emily Musket knows that she's had an incredibly tough year. Um, with the passing of her mother and, and um, being in one of a, one of very few um, Olympic and um, sort of Olympic and non-Olympic categories means that she's got double the competition. So she's, she's really, really, put a phenomenal effort in and that has probably made her an individual that will go down in history as the first world medalist for 25 years and the first European champion for 25 years. 
I think those moments really, really changed the the sort of um, the confidence that the team had that it could be done. And getting getting a team of four to the games, there's still a little bit of work left to go, and the international federation has has changed our allocation procedure in after the qualification ended, which is going to be interesting. But we hope we can still get the four of them there and um, to get the opportunity to see out that journey that's been over three and a half years in length probably the longest qualification that will ever exist due to due to this pandemic so yeah we're, we're incredibly proud of them and i think they've done the country and, and weightlifting you know no end of um no end of amazing feats that hopefully we'll be able to carry the momentum forwards with really mm. and hopefully inspire that next lot of uh weightlifters coming through yeah so, certainly so turning to to the uh, talent development model you have received in british weightlifting what's the typical kind of experience or maybe there isn't a typical one in terms of you know when an athlete first encounters weightlifting as a sport what is that that kind of experience like is it coming from using it within a strength conditioning program or using it within crossfit or some other avenue altogether what what's the typical kind of entry point for a for an athlete coming into weightlifting so um it, it is quite varied yeah i mean these days as, as i said when i first started weightlifting I went on the British weightlifting page, which still to this day, people don't always, aren't always very good at finding. Um, but I went into the British weightlifting page, went to the club finder and looked for my nearest club. And that nearest club was two hours away. So that was completely outside of my capabilities to, to achieve. So I had to go to a local gym and I, I searched around my local gym to try to find the type of equipment I needed. And it was nearly impossible. I could find bars. I could find gyms that had enough space between the machines to, um, to try and attempt to learn some weightlifting. Um, but uh, yeah, there wasn't much access. Nowadays, that's a completely different ball game. Probably 10 years on, you know, that every town in the country probably has a CrossFit box or some sort of facility with a platform and an Olympic bar that means they can get stuck in. So in that sense, it's really the, the breadth of individuals we see has really grown, which has been brilliant for the sport. In terms of where they predominantly come from, those that have the greatest potential and tend to end up on the pathway, um, we see a little bit of CrossFit, not probably as much as I'd say they see in America. I'm not quite sure why that is, but uh, it seems like the British CrossFit community is really passionate about CrossFit and not so much about weightlifting. It maybe is just a numbers game. We might see the, um, I suppose it might be with through rose-tinted glasses that we think the Americans have a lot more CrossFitters come through. It might just be the nature of the total number of CrossFitters and the total number of weightlifters in the States that makes it appear that way. Um, we, see a, we see a few transfer across via snc programs but not too many i'd say i mean i think uh, usually snc programs are focused on other sports so unless that athlete is making an active choice to leave their sport we don't tend to see too much um maybe maybe that's just a generational thing again because snc has probably proliferated more in the last five years than i would have said in the 10 years prior um so then usually we to be quite honest, people fall into our laps in clubs uh, or universities. Universities have often been a great um, searching ground for talent transfer. Uh, Emily Campbell um, first found the sport. She was a she was a thrower, uh, a, a pretty good one. I don't, don't I think she might have represented a sort of junior international or youth international level, but not quite a senior. Um, but she found weightlifting through her her sort of one of our weightlifting coaches was based at Leeds University at the time and he sort of 
took one look at her and went, you're coming and trying weightlifting and you don't have to do it immediately, but um, you know, let's give it a try and let's see where it goes. And it'll help you. It'll help your, uh, your throw in and go from there. And then eventually he managed to convince her. I think he said, give it one year, go to some competitions, give it one year. And that was how it came about. Uh, Sarah came into the sport via um, partner at the time. I think if I'm correct. Um, Zoe came into the sport via gymnastics by that, via Europa being connected to a gymnastics club and Andy, the coach at Europa used to just walk in every year and go, which ones can I take? Uh, they're not necessarily going to make it at the top end of gymnastics. And the coach would go this one, this one, this one. And he'd go, come on, then let's go and have a try weightlifting. And that was how business used to operate there for quite a long time until they moved their site. Um, Chris Murray came from diving. Uh, he's one of our leading men. Um, we've had a number recently from judo. Um, that seemed to be doing really, really well. And uh, yeah, that's that's probably athletics, judo, um, athletics, judo, and uh, gymnastics probably are our key ones over time. But yeah, as I said, we have not had much in the way of a systematic method of recruitment for those individuals. So it's not, um, it's not really by design. Hopefully, it will become that way because that's very much a part of the strategy we've been implementing for the last sort of three or four years, and hope to continue and grow as we move forwards. So, you know, I, I'm guessing, given that a lot of athletes seem to come out of other sports, is there a fair bit of competition for athletes? Like, if someone shows a bit of potential, are you also at the same time navigating? Oh well, I'm also pretty good at this this sport, and you know, uh, is there a bit of a tug of war around athletes getting committing to one over the other? I mean, I am biased, um, but weightlifting is an interesting sport. If an athlete transfers out of another sport into weightlifting, it's rare that they want to go anywhere else. That, that tends to be our experience. If, if, if they've got any potential and they, they pick up on that early doors, then weightlifting is like a life commitment. As soon as you start, it's like, right, that's it. That's the end of your life. You're just a weightlifter now. Um, not, in, not in a negative way. But, you know, that, that's almost... The, it seems to be the behavior of most weightlifters that come through by talent transfer. Now that might, we might be missing the odd one because they maybe we just don't become aware of them and they are choosing, but generally from our observations and it isn't all centrally run. A lot of it's led by the clubs, quite frankly, and a, probably a handful of clubs have tended to do a lot of the development over the years to get athletes to the level where the NGB notices them. Um, but yeah, no, it seems that, seems that weightlifting is the primary choice more often than not and maybe that's because people these days have a slightly greater awareness of strength training in the first place i'd, I'd like to think that probably is the case it certainly feels that way in the last few years hmm. so given you know you mentioned obviously before it's kind of i guess haphazard or by happenstance that athletes would, would come you know walk into a club or get picked up or transfer in some way moving forward is there a more specific strategy around identifying and developing talent <laughs> Yeah, so we have, um, as I said, we've been awarded some money by UK Sport, um, probably the biggest amount of money we've ever been awarded, I think, actually, through history, at least prior to 2000, when the system worked a little bit differently. And there are three key strategies we've got within that, that progression, uh, or in order to, that we have to deliver for that progression money. So um, the first one is changing the way that we support uh, athletes with high potential. So that's probably what would look a little bit more like a classic world-class program, but more about the longer term development journey and how we can do that a little bit differently to maybe the world-class programs 
in a decentralized fashion is going to be the way that we deliver it. So it'll be a lot more about connecting with the athlete and their personal coach and helping them go on that journey rather than saying, come, come away from those people. They don't know what they're doing. Come and join a centralized program. So we, we don't want to foster that approach. The second then is um, <clears throat> just raising the standard of coaching. So just probably, and if not the most important one of those three, um, we want to do a similar thing. We want to find a cohort of coaches we think have potential um, and support them on that journey, help them fill the gaps that they have in their development and help them raise their credibility by developing a group of athletes each. And then the final one is growing and broadening that, that base of talent that we have, making it more diverse and, and bigger and deeper. Um, and that, uh, so none of those three things are particularly revolutionary. People at home are going, I could do his job. You probably could. Um, but uh, yeah, that raised the that raised the raised the pyramid or, or base of base of talent. There's kind of two key strategies we have there. So one is talent transfer. Um, so it is about building systematic or a systematic method of accelerating someone's progress across that first two years. You know, making sure that they have the the right understanding and and, and journey to to make sure that um, they don't get two years into the sport and have big gaps. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. I mean, in order to facilitate that, we're looking to build a number of key partnerships with some of those sports we just mentioned. Um, and also there's a, a program this summer or campaign this summer called Home to the Games, which will focus around Tokyo and trying to provide athletes with opportunities to explore their potential in new sports. So the, the age range for that is, is pretty broad. Um, we tend to try to target exit points from other sports, uh, and that will be the the goal for us with um, athletics and gymnastics, for example, um, in the first instance. Uh, and then we have a profile that we sort of recruit for when it comes to um, more generally. So certain age ranges, brackets, what sports, what experiences we're looking for, what, what mentalities, what behaviours, what physical qualities. And then the same for slightly later, later on. Men, we tend to have to look a little bit earlier because the journey takes a little bit longer because the international landscape is slightly more established and women these days actually it is very established but it seems that we were able to accelerate women to the international standard a bit quicker than men for whatever reason um whether that's just uh we have inspirational women who are role models for the system at the moment and we need to build a few more of those for the men or whether it's um just the nature of some of the things that happened in our sport over the last sort of decade in terms of anti-doping sanctions and things like that and i think there's a slight feeling that we need to see a uh, a generation of men retire in order to see that impact um, generally because we think that the use of performance enhancing drugs has a possibly greater um, latent effect in men than it maybe does in women and maybe that's why we've seen the change quicker we're not 100 sure but um, yeah we're, we're optimistic that if we build that it'll make a real real difference to the talent at the top and then secondly we have a sort of more traditional pathway and that's going to be really focused on how we build relationships with the home nations um, and the clubs and, and our real goal there is to to build a sort of program of activity that connects clubs with schools or local sports clubs and offers kind of some some basic opportunity to explore weightlifting really early on in someone's sporting career um, quite openly um, quite quite sort of health and resistance and strength training focused um, with then the open-ended opportunity for them to come and join that talent academy that would would deliver those programs. So we hope if we we get that right, that it'll it'll um, 
really grow the number of young people engaged in the sport, which is, is pretty critical for us and a really big, um, a really big system theme for uh, sporting and this cycle. So that's we're kind of really aligned already on that front and just hoping that we can get the, the sort of funding we need to deliver it to the, to the standard we want to deliver it to. So let's dig a little bit more into that profile that you mentioned. What are some of the, the characteristics, both physically and mentally, that you're looking at? And I guess also, as you mentioned, maybe potential age spans that, that you know are, are the kind of, I guess, dropout periods of other sports. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it's a detailed profile. So I'm going to try and recall it off the top of my head because I haven't got the slides in front of me. But in general, we tend to see in this country, it's potentially quite different in other, other countries internationally. You know, often people like to use the Chinese as an example, or they start at seven, nine years old. We're always going to be, we're never going to, we're always going to be playing catch up, but we have to deal with them. Um, but for us, we, we tend to see on the male side, men start between about 13 and 15. Um, they usually come from um, backgrounds where they've got a good work ethic for whatever reason and they're committed to the sport quite early doors. I think we are in certainly the men's side, a bit more of an early, early specialization sport. But when I say early, I mean, possibly just the age at which they commit to the sport rather than the time at which they start the sport, if that makes difference. Um, I think what we tend to find is they're engaged two to three times a week in some sort of strength training activity prior to their arrival in, and commitment to weightlifting. And often the other activities that they, they do tend to fill the void um, in terms of those general broad athlete development characteristics, whether it be power and power and strength training or um, that sort of side of things. So, um, as I said, we've the likes of Chris Murray have tended to come from your um, sort of gymnasticsy divingy backgrounds. Quite a lot of boys tend to come from rugby backgrounds, I guess, probably because they've got some strength training experience, and that sometimes is how they find their way in. Um, and, and those individuals tend to, again, a couple have come from judo, but yeah, high force, high velocity sports, that tends to be a good background. And again, anybody that's got some sort of decent general movement quality and skill, weightlifting isn't something you can just do if you can't, can only power snatch for the first three years of your journey. So you've got to have good movement, which is probably why we get a lot of gymnasts from the women's perspective. Women, uh, we actually tend to see people a little bit later. I'm not entirely sure whether that's due to the just general dropout that we know happens in women around the end of um, around the end of their their sort of school and college um, in that 16, 17 age bracket. But we tend to see quite a lot of women come across at 16 to 20. Um, again, mostly from other sports, we're similar to the men. Um, not so much rugby. We haven't seen any women come across from rugby as yet, but some from CrossFit occasionally. Um, I think depending on the time frames they last in CrossFit depends on whether they're they've lost some of those high force, high velocity potentials, uh, potential benefits. Um, <clears throat> so largely, I guess we get a lot come across from, and more recently, yeah, judo. There's been quite a few, and then your track athletes, um, throwers, and gymnasts. So that's that's your kind of. And then I guess, yeah, the other group is probably dancers and gymnasts at about 12 to 13 for the women, so earlier than the men. Um, so that was the likes of Zoe Smith. Um, some of our youngsters in recent years have done similar. I think there's a dropout point for gymnastics about 12, 13 when they go to secondary school because the, the demand of 30 hours a week of training is not always appealing to a 12 to 13-year-old girl, unsurprisingly. Um, so in that sense, I think we often find that 
girls exiting the gymnastics pathway around that age have got a lot of time to fill. They've got a very big capacity for work and there aren't very many sports that can offer them the opportunity to train in quite the same way that weightlifting does. So I think that's possibly one of the reasons why we see a bit of transfer there because we can probably offer athletes the opportunity to train 10 to 15 hours a week in the sport from, from that age onwards, as long as they've got the maturity and the, the, um, the sort of the interest and commitment to do so. Um, but in the same way, it's quite low, you know, club level weightlifting is, it's quite a non-intense experience. It's quite an inclusive experience. People can just come along and do what they please for the first period of time. They're not going to be potentially pushed or, or shoved in any one direction. So I think that, tends to be maybe one of the things that makes gymnasts a little bit attracted to it in terms of a little bit more overt um rate of progress so as i said earlier we, we're looking at how we can support people across that first two years because one of the things we found is that the amount of progress made we've done a bit of a for those people that understand the uk sporting system the uk sport model expects each sport that they engage with have what they call a what it takes to win model. And um, that has to break down how an athlete is going to make it from day one to, to podium. And in those investigations over the last few years, we've sort of looked at a variety of our best athletes over the last few decades. And the amount of progress made in the first two years is, is so variable that it's, it's so inconsistent that we can't really pin down what happens um, or pin down what an indicator of potential is there. I think the old uh, the old school model of, of weightlifting talent was the start point that you're at as well as the progress you make. And so we we sort of have to look at that quite openly in that first two years. And that's why we're creating a development experience for those first two years to hopefully make sure that, you know, an athlete can make the potential progress that they, they can. And it takes them to that sort of end of two years and in a position where they could then move into a program if they had the, if they'd achieved the necessary standard to do so. But at the same time, we we do see so many various. If you took Emily Godley as an example, you know, the first, as I said, the first world medalist and first European champion. If you looked at her first two years of progress, you'd have probably gone. You could have probably you, you might have ignored her, quite frankly, because um, her progress almost all the way through her career has been really just steady, really, really, uh, really smooth. And um, except probably that first six months where everybody learns to lift. Um, so I think in that sense, we, we are, we are very keen to maintain an open mind and we have what we call our pathway standards that, um, are basically by age standards that we think an athlete can get to within their first two years of, of progress. Um, so that's sort of a bit of a, an overt measure and we track and monitor all of our results from across every competition in the country and, and look at the progress rates and, um, standards of athletes against those those base measures to see where they're at and what they're, how they're going so that we can, we can pick up on them quite quickly and get them involved in squads or camps or engage with their coaches and make sure that they're supported at the right level. Um, so that we've done a bit of research in recent years into the our sort of technical model and um, physical characteristics. Um, there are a couple of physical characteristics in terms of um, power outputs and things like mid diasymmetric pull, but on their own as standalone measures they're not they're not um they're not necessarily things that we we track but where they are things that we look at just with interest someone pulls 
pulls a big number, then we don't get so excited that we found the next Olympic champion, but we will pay attention to that and see how they evolve over those next couple of years. Um, anthropometrically, we found that there are a variety of shapes and sizes that this kind of like, you have to look like you're from, um, you know, East Asia and either Korean or Chinese in, in terms of your build is just a load of nonsense, quite frankly. There's different ways in which it might not be at the very absolute level, in fairness, because if you took it, if you took the statistics for, for what they are, then um, the number of gold medals won by the, the Chinese at the Olympics and, um, and World Championships does tend to stand for itself. But I think it's more to do with population size and um, total number of individuals than it is to do with their anthropometrics, especially when you look at their national team and you've got that 109 that they've got that um, is one of the most bizarre um, bizarre body shapes I've ever seen, actually. Um, so he doesn't fill some of those natural things that some people like to throw out in weightlifting. Um, and then you see, you know, Russian champions and all sorts of that stuff over the years from, from Europe. So, yeah, it's anthropometrically it's a very inclusive sport. And there's a little bit of you know, the only real thing that it, that it indicates is that you're logically your mass dictates the amount of your mass dictates the amount of weight you lift and your height will probably dictate your mass. So if you're, we have a sort of um, a guidance chart and we use then uh, what we know about an athlete's predicted height relative to where they, where they are in that journey and what that means for their potential end body weight to give us an indication about whether they're on track to achieve those standards at that body weight. Cause we have to be a little bit obviously observant about that. If you're, progressing at 3% a year and gaining five kilos a year. Um, that's sometimes not going to quite cut the mustard. So yeah, those are the, those are the key things in very detailed summary. So you mentioned that kind of two year mark of, of seeing someone's rate of progress and having some kind of pathway standards. So I'm guessing that's when you first start to see, okay, this, this athlete's got something about them. I mean, we're obviously talking kind of a, a training age of two years in terms of that, you know, a point of entry into, into the sport. When is it or how long down the kind of journey? And again, there might not be a standard answer for this, but when do you start to see that lifter go on to maybe achieve some of their peak performances? Is there a, a rule of thumb in terms of years of training or even you know chronological age that you see around about this? This is when we can expect some peaks. Yeah, so one of the things we've done is we've kind of broken down, created a bit of a table or sort of structure framework to what we expect to see from athletes at the various stages. And so we consider zero to six months to be a beginner. Uh, six months to two years to be novice, two to five years to be intermediate, five to eight years to be advanced and eight plus to be elite. Um, so tending as the sport has grown and as the standard of lifting nationally has increased, um, the point at which people tend to have the opportunities to go, for example, to international competitions has reduced because inevitably there's more competition. So you've got to work harder and longer in order to get to that spot. Um, yeah, that first two years is, is critical for progress and it's probably like, right, okay, this person at that point, we would probably determine to have potential. I think would be the best way to describe it. Or at least physical potential of some kind. Probably another three years later, five years, would be the first point at which I would expect to see that individual arrive at an age group international. So if they were, for example, to have started at 18, I'd be looking or interested to see if they made it to an age group international by the time they were 23 which is our cutoff for age groups, which is one of the reasons why we tend to, we tend to like to get people in before about 18. We, you know, Emily Campbell breaks that mold. She was about 2021 20, when she started, but 
the, the sooner you get someone, the better in terms of you've then got probably 12 years to develop them before they start to think about that point of diminishing returns. So as anybody that's nearing 28, 30 knows, if you're still not quite made it when you're 28, 30, there's probably someone over here in the background nagging in your ear telling you that actually, should you be, is you really going to make it? Is it really worth another four years of our life? Or should we start looking at other things that we want to do and, and so forth? So yeah, if you look at that total development time, um, 18 is probably a good age for us to try to get people in for. Eight years, so that's sort of eight years, we probably think that that person is going to be starting to knock on the door of their first, first Commonwealth Games. You know, some people, the more talented end, might make it after five years. Um, but the longer term view, which is the one we tend to focus on, and then we account for the anomalies, um, is that eight years is probably the time it takes for you as an average individual with a certain level of potential to get to a commies. And then eight plus years, um, you're probably looking your first Commonwealth International, first Commonwealth medal, your first first Olympic Games. And then um, 12 years, we'd like to think, is maybe your first Olympic medal. At least that's what someone like a Zoe or a Sarah Davies or a, um, probably your best examples at the moment would, would have probably committed to. I think Zoe's actually about 15 years because she started so young, but I think Sarah's about coming up to 12, uh, sorry, coming up to 10. So, um, you know, if you had a couple more years, Paris, 13 years, that's about when we would like to hope that she is about that medal, medal potential level. So, yeah, that's kind of our expected journey. Um, obviously, any model is flawed and you have to account for the anomalies and account for people just not engaging in or not making the progress you expect. But, um, yeah, that's that's tends to be so six months, two years, five years, eight years, 12 years. Mm -hmm. So obviously at the top end, you've got, you know, I mean, the peak experience of the Olympic Games at that eight to 12 Commonwealth Games. What sits underneath that in terms of as athletes go through their experience in the sport and are kind of shifting through those beginner, novice, intermediate, advanced levels, what are some of the programs or some of the initiatives that sit within that, that talent pathway to, to, I guess, develop talent for the next level? Um, so always have this bit of a debate with this one because I tend to accredit most of the work to the clubs and the coaches at the, at the ground because we're not a sport that we're not a professional sport so it's not like you've got 12 professional clubs around the country and you're going to end up in an academy and you're going to end up in a in the first team and then if you do well in the first team you're going to end up in the national team and so on and so forth it just doesn't doesn't work that way so recently doing a few calculations our number of contacts with athletes a year we're lucky if we see them monthly quite frankly so um, we try to we try to target what we think is missing in general from the pathway, or fill the missing is maybe not fair. Fill the gaps that we think that maybe the average coach might not have the capacity to fill, and make sure that the athletes themselves are really very clear on the standards expected of them. Those are probably the two key key factors. So. We, we have a kind of structure um, that we describe as it's like three phase, a three factor, um, fundamentals, specific factors, individual factors. Um, fundamentals are things which most people would recognize as non-negotiables. So if you're a weightlifter, you must be able to do the following things, because if you cannot, some point down the line, they're going to hold you back. So we try to make sure that the technical syllabus that we deliver, for example, gets athletes to understand key um key reference points of the body 
and in the simplest way possible what uh, effective weightlifting technique is not necessarily optimal but what the boundaries of effective are which is basically making sure that at any given position um, or phase of the lift the bar remains within your base support that's the simplest way of putting it although maybe not the way you put it to athletes so bar should be above first lace at the start or bar should be above ankle um, that sort of stuff from a behavioral standpoint then we look at it similarly so i think these days it's, it's quite easy for people to I've done, I've done two presentations on this this week, actually, already. People like to, um, especially practitioners, often like to get stuck into the individual stuff quite early doors. Um, you know, what's right for that athlete optimally now? And actually, one of the things I think I've found as a consequence of that over the years is that we often end up inheriting a lot of athletes that have really big gaps in their fundamentals. So I always tell the story. There's always a couple of stories I tell, but, you know, um, I just want when an athlete arrives on a train on a more formal program, we support them a bit more regularly. I want them to be getting seven to nine, eight hours of sleep a night. I want them to be drinking three to four liters of water a day, depending on the size of their body. And I want them to be eating three meals a day with vegetables. Quite frankly, if they can do those three things, it is a gigantic difference. And instead of me dealing with athletes who think that eating ice cream for dinner almost every night of the week, and investing their money in Ben and Jerry's, who are some of the most talented athletes in the country at our junior level, um, and then trying to help them develop the behaviour to eat three meals a day, that would be a gigantic performance gain. And funnily enough, when you make those differences, it looks good for the programme when that happens, because when you make those differences, then they make phenomenal gains, because ice cream, although lovely, is not a fantastic performance fuel. Um, it is great after dinner. Um, but, you know, those are the sorts of things that we tend to try to focus on in our, our real basic level. This is what will be expected of you. If you come, if you come to this level and you have, you're not achieving that, then prepare for, um, yeah, prepare to be challenged to do those things before you're given the sort of individual rate, um, individual right of uh, autonomy and that sort of side of things. The, um, the sort of secondary level then is what we probably term good practice. And that's about for us trying to, we, we, we like to consider ourselves being principle based rather than too too prescriptive so that for me would be looking at the, the behaviors that you need a weightlifter to be able to demonstrate so for example um we look at our elite athletes and, and those that are most successful and most of them lead their programs so um for take the way that i coach the guys that i coach for example it's the early part of the journey you provide them with prescriptive training because that's the normal you need to get them used to the methodology and build the capacity and all those sorts of things then quite quickly you start to wean them off that so you you take them from prescription prescribed program to ranges so yeah you need to do something in this area you need to use feel to decide what that looks like and then eventually you just hand them a template and you say right what works for you and if you've done the work prior to that point well the idea is that they have a really good understanding of what those fundamental things that they those standards they 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 need in place to to make themselves make progress and then you become more of a consultant so you're working with them to identify what their areas of strength and weakness are working with them to recall and reflect back on periods of time where they've had to address those things before because by the time you're an elite athlete you've usually done most things five times and it's basically like having a phd it's just you need someone to remind you what the things you did that were effective last time were so that you can do them again um so in that specific range then we look at what are the tools what are the tools and the principles that get athletes to think? So an example of that might be um, ratios. Um, 
so strength ratios. So for example, we tend to have kind of fixed or fixed ranges of what your hang snatch could be, should be compared to your snatch. Nothing again, nothing particularly revolutionary, but um, we just want to create process and get them used to those processes of thinking so that they can go through those and, uh, and recognize what it is they need to do to make progress. And it, that in itself tends to empower athletes to, to get better. And the final level is individual factors, and we don't do anything to do with that because, quite frankly, I don't think it's our responsibility to do anything with it. And the way we define individual factors is it's things that they don't affect the performance. They are personal choices, philosophies, beliefs that um, don't interrupt either those first two levels. They don't come outside the black and white standards that we've set, and they don't um, stop someone from exploring the grey area. So an example of that might be someone who has a preference towards certain kind of diet, vegan, vegetarian, paleo, whatever you want to call it. I don't really care as long as it doesn't interrupt those things we've established as, as clear standards. Um, and those clear standards are flexible enough to allow people that, that, that sort of flexibility in the philosophy, but um, strong enough that it can remind them when their philosophies or their beliefs are skipping outside of the areas of normal logical practice. Um, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't call out any names on here, but we, we all, we, we all know Instagram, Instagram accounts that like to just create mad stuff and pretend it's, you know, the next silver bullet just to sell products. So we, we, you know, we hope it just steers people away from that kind of mad thinking and, um, that sort of side of things really. Um, so in that space, I suppose the only thing we do do is to provide a bit of accountability, a bit of check and challenge. Um, but equally, we have to keep our minds open enough to allow them the flexibility and autonomy to do what they think is right for them. Mm, I really like that. That speaks a lot to uh, some sort of process that I view in terms of that coaching is like at that base level, that fundamental level, you have to learn the rules that you have to learn the rules of your body in space, learn the rules of looking after yourself and that kind of stuff. And then as you get accommodated and understand that, then we can start to flex it a little bit go, well, actually maybe it's, you know, maybe for you this rep range feels a little bit better and it's that education of an athlete around themselves isn't it like i've spoken to a lot of you know, players at the end of their career and they say actually do you know i would have really loved to have a bit more input in my program because on match days i really like to do this or the day before match days i like to do this but the coach was so rigid whereas i think you're right if you can kind of teach right these are the principles and now you understand the principles what what about them when you flex them what makes you feel really good what makes you feel really bad what do you find sets you up to perform well? What what kind of gives you a hurdle that you have to jump over? And that's where that individualization comes. But there's a bit around the athlete taking responsibility for that, as you've mentioned, to, to kind of tune into their own bodies and, and realize, okay, I feel good when I do this. I feel bad when I do that, you know, but you're, you're right. You have to know the rules to be able to break the rules. Exactly. I mean, a great example of that would be like progressive overload. So um, if a weightlifter doesn't understand what progressive overload is, you've probably got a problem, quite frankly, because they're probably not making choices about weights or, um, understanding how they should be making progress within within and across the training program, especially an elite athlete who has to respond to feel, and especially in a sport that has such a high technical demand and high power output requirement, that fatigue is going to affect it quite quite daily, um, quite quite readily. So you know, I think that would be yeah. Progressive overload is a great example of a principle that sh you should help instill in an athlete, or certainly a strength athlete, or someone around their training, because you want them to come in and go right. Um, what works best for me in this space? Am I the type of athlete that makes my progress as a consequence of the progression of volume? Am I the type of athlete that makes progress as a consequence of the progression of intensity? 
um, are there certain relationships between certain things in my, and then you could bring yourself onto specificity, I suppose. You say there's certain relationships between certain exercises that seem to benefit me, whether they're correct or not. You know, those, those beliefs are, are quite important to cultivate. So, you know, if I give Chris Murray as an example, um, you know, classically, weightlifting, you wouldn't prescribe hang snatches leading to a competition. It just, it's not normally the done thing. Um, reason being because it's, it's usually a, you know, I suppose the pull phase of the lift is largely a, a concentric ballistic movement to some extent. It's not a reactive movement, which is more or less one of hang, hang snatches. It's utilization of um, stretch shortening energy. So you wouldn't use hang snatches, but Chris gets a hell of a lot of confidence out of hang snatches. And he has a traditionally weaker lower back. So hang snatches seem to maintain lower back strength and increase confidence, therefore having a positive impact on his competition performance at the end of a, of a peaking phase of training. Um, so it's, it's those sorts of relationships that you're looking to try to cultivate through that middle level um, without dry, yeah, without being too prescriptive about what they should be. You don't want everybody to come, oh, we should all do block snatch at that point because that's what that's what everybody in weightlifting does. No, you that's not what, that might be what everybody else in weightlifting does, but what's what is it for you that works? You know, how are you going to progress in that period? Are you someone that flat loads? Are you someone that has a step load? Are you someone that drops off and does your technical work at the end rather than the beginning? You know, we want them to know that sort of stuff. And, and you know, if they've if they're clear on their method, they understand what their capacity is, they understand what a good day and a bad day looks like, and you can give them the best opportunity to make progress. No, I think that's classic. And I mean, you know, there's so many people that get attributed quotes on the on the internet these days, but it's that whole one around methods. You know, there's lots of methods, but there's very few principles. So, you know, if you understand the principles, you can select whatever method is, is appropriate for you at that point in time. But if you're if you're married to your methods, there comes a point where you've kind of used it up and you're banging your head against the wall, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what about turning out to the to the mental side of things? We've obviously mentioned a little bit about behavioral side in terms of things like sleep and, and nutrition, et cetera. Is there a bit more around mindset? I mean, obviously weightlifting is, it can be quite a brutal sport. I mean, I think we've both fallen foul of bombing out in a competition. So, you know, it's a very public display of failure that maybe isn't there in so many other sports. And you're very much on your own when you step onto the platform, although there may be a coach, you know, a few minutes behind you, the spotlight's on you and it's very obvious to everyone in the room whether you were successful or not. So what are some of the, the psychological side of things that, that happen throughout that pathway? So we split psych into two areas, prep and performance. Um, I'll talk about performance first because it's a little bit easier. So a couple of years back, we started thinking about, okay, well, what is a metric of performance? What, what is a really overt metric that someone is or isn't a good performer uh, from a psychological perspective? So um, in simplest terms, we thought, well, let's go qualitative, let's go quantitative. Let's try and do this quantitatively. So we looked at the international, we looked at the sport and we said, well, there's six lifts. Um, well, what indicates a good performance to us then from six lifts? And we said, well, six would be excellent, but if someone always did six, you'd probably make the assumption that they're not necessarily challenging themselves the harder you want to be. So, okay. What about five then? Uh, five would probably be optimal, but it'd probably be, you'd probably make that on a very good day so you, you couldn't necessarily hold people always to accountable to five because not every day in competition will be perfect so then we said well all right well the logical thing to go with is go four then so we said well what about three we said well three basically if you hit three you will one lift away from bombing out so three is not enough so four out of six is the number so four out of six is our minimum standard in short if if we're looking at 
even when we look at athletes for international competitions, we measure their success ratio. So if they make less than four out of six lifts, that's, it's not a black mark on the name, but then we ask the question, why? Um, so we review like the last year's worth of results every time we go through a, a performance selection for, for an international competition. And if an athlete flags as being less than four out of six, then we'll look back. Now, if you looked at the last three and they were doing two out of six for the last three and they were good beforehand, you would question what the pro you, you start to have a metric go well why is that like what, what is the reason that we're seeing this this drop off in consistency in competition um equally if we're at the other end we're not seeing athlete progress then we can go oh hang on a minute they're always six out of sixes but we've not seen an extra kilo on that bar for the best part of 12 months like why is that let's go and have a, let's go and have a conversation so that's the overt metric that's how we trigger the conversation um the less overt metrics, I suppose, then we use uh, things like PCDEs and then, um, which is probably more from performance, a preparation perspective, but there are some of them obviously that relate to performance. Um, the ones that we use from performance perspective. So if we talk about fundamentals, we like athletes to understand what stress is. So the same way we want them to know what a back squat is, we want to know what stress is at a base level. It's, you know, the response of your body to hormones. As soon as you understand that, you can start to understand why it might respond a little bit. From that, then we look at the types of pressure that you face in weightlifting. And we think there are kind of three-ish, probably you could probably break down more, but three, we kind of focus on our time. So for those that don't know, you get a one minute roll, you get a one minute clock, you get one minute to get on the platform and deliver your performance once you're called. Um, expectation. So either self-created or um, pressure of peers and, and those around you which is still self-created isn't it really um, and then the third one is observation so you know either on camera in front of a crowd whatever so we try to again we tend to take them through scenarios and around national camps to give them the opportunity to understand those different pressures so uh, we could get all into the detail all day long but we'll try to manipulate the time rest constraints for um, big sessions or whatever to, to manipulate the time pressure or We'll try to um, we'll try to get into um, you know sort of prior to prior to decision making like if then planning almost around the the sort of weight selections and the choices and put the athletes at the forefront of those choices in some of the sessions so that they have to deal with the consequences of overly high expectations themselves versus overly overly low ones. Um, An observation will do the classic you know stand in front of the platform wave your hands and try to get people to maintain focus and control while, while people that, while they're external distractions, trying to, trying to get out there in general, that's the education experience. Um, I suppose the, the tool is then, oh, sorry. <laughs> the tool is then, um, is then probably reflection based. Um, so we don't actually have the privilege of a psychologist, but we try and facilitate that through the coaching team, through discussions, etc. Um, as, as we go around competitions, we recognize that the one of the major factors in performance mindset is competition experience as well. So, you know, we, we set a certain expectation for all the athletes on the pathway that really you should be competing a minimum of four times a year, if not more, really. Um, that might sound very few for other sports, but if you equate four times a year across 10 years, that's 40 competitions. Um, and that's about the same as most of the leading international but we've done a few studies and that's about the same as the experience of most first time medal winners in Olympic games. So it seems about right. Um, there's also a breakdown within that of international competition experience, obviously. Um, prep mindset. 
yeah, as I said, we look at those PCDEs really. So um, planning organization, focus and control, prioritization, um, and a variety of those other ones as well. Um, so I suppose a lot of that just comes down to making sure we provide education sessions and again, sort of um, tools or frameworks for, for thinking and planning, you know, looking at ambitions, looking at um, after action reviews, looking at Eisenhower matrix, stuff like that, to try to get them to understand um, principles that might help them manage those different areas. So that would be fundamentals. And I guess I suppose, yeah, because it's most of your, most of your mind is quantitative. It's perceptual. It's, it's again, mostly facilitated through, through um, discussion and reflection. Um, we have, we have sort of connections with our powerlifting program and the psychologist on that side of things is a chap called Hugh Gilmore, who um, has been incredibly helpful in helping me specifically to understand that. And we can't afford to pay him to come in and deliver it himself and help facilitate the reflections. Although hopefully moving forwards, we'll be able to find him or someone else that can, can help us with that piece of work. But um, yeah, the, in terms of the building, the framework, the ideas, the sort of structure of it, I'm sure there's probably more we can do to learn but um that's kind of how we've we've approached that side of things but again mm. i think that's such a tr that's probably the trickiest area for me prep prep mindset because as coaches or practitioners or parents or anything or, or not parents parents are probably the only the only ones that could um we don't see them outside the gym so we don't know what they do we can't we can only coach them in the gym based on prompts and reminders um about that sort of side of stuff so for example pretty much any time any athlete walks in the gym with me, those three questions I mentioned to you earlier are pretty much planted in my approach to finding out a little bit about how they're prepared. So, you know, how was, you know, how was last night? Did you, did you get enough sleep or what have you eaten today before you've come to training or blah, 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 blah. So, you know, those are the sorts of things I think you can do as a coach generally to try to prompt slightly better behaviors, but I'm not sure you can, I'm not sure. I think that's the area that, athletes have to take the most responsibility for in terms of the learning and, and the structure you can only really educate them and then leave them to their own devices and keep reminding them and nudging them that they should be doing these things hmm. no i think that's really great yeah just even your breakdown of those types of pressure i think that's really interesting because i was having this exact conversation with a previous guest who works in a completely different sport and you know he was saying you know, the head coach basically couldn't understand why they were unsuccessful at this this part of the game and he says, blindingly obvious to me, it's because you never practice like you practice in the game. Like it's always done. There's loads of time. People aren't really paying proper attention. There's no real pressure element of like, we're doing three reps of this and that's it. Whereas you've done a really good job there of breaking that down. Like, and I think that is where a lot of people in many sports go wrong is their practice is nothing like their competition, you know, without, like you said, the time constraint or the pressure of, okay, this is your last lift and you've got to make this to get on the scoreboard. You know, a lot of people practice is very comfortable it's very clean it's very you know perfect reps whereas actually when it turns to competition day and there's nerves and there's observers and there's you know someone's suddenly last minute changed their lift and you thought you had an extra two minutes and now you've been called you know that is a different ball game to tuesday night in a training hall i've got two hours to get to my session there's a there's a chalk and cheese aren't they Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at one of the most brutal regimes of weightlifting training ever, you, you'd cite immediately the Bulgarians um, of the 80s and 90s. And, and essentially, that was their whole methodology. And uh, although we know how they achieved that methodology uh, through through their use of performance enhancing drugs, there's, there's an element of um, that they, they were sort of 
I think it's literally they framed it. You know, brave as a lion was almost their phrase. It was it's sort of like a you you literally stare the lion in the face every single training session. You do three exercises. You do snatch, clean and jerk, and front squat, and you work up to your maximal weights every single day. And if you do not hit your maximal weights, there are consequences. Now. I'm certainly not recommending uh, or suggesting in any way, shape or form that we would apply any of the consequences that they used to apply, which included not allowing athletes to eat um, if they didn't hit the numbers they were supposed to for the day, which is completely counterintuitive. But it was literally, you know, um, this is this is what you need to do in the sport. And these are the consequences if you don't do it. So they were some of the toughest and most physically well, uh, mentally well prepared athletes that you could possibly imagine. Um in terms of their ability to step out on a platform and deliver what was required of them because the, the stakes were just gigantic. So I think what we, what you have to try to do exactly as you're saying, is you have to manage those stakes in a way that um, definitely has a, has an impact on helping them understand the reality of a pressure of failing to achieve or failing to cope with that, that stressor. Um, I think uh, weightlifting is an interesting one because it's, it's kind of pre-planned so you can utilize things like pre-performance routines to handle time pressure. And then you can look at the consistency of those pre-performance routines to, to, to sort of give you feedback on whether or not they are handling that pressure. Well, you know, if you see them warm up in the back room and they're consistent, 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 and then all of a sudden they get out on the platform, they start growling, doing backflips and um, shuffling their feet before they set up against the bar. You'd be like, hang on a minute. What, why did you do that? You can ask those questions quite quickly, can't you? But, and then, you know, you can put that pressure back on them in training, give them 30 seconds or 20 seconds or manipulate a very, a very simple variable. Um, so, yeah, it's I think we what we try to do is provide the initial education. What is the time pressure and how what what are some of the things that could, you know, here's how it feels when it's changed. I think that's probably the way we we would probably focus our fundamentals training. I think then the, the bit in training might look a little bit different so you kind of probably exaggerate it for the for the learning experience and then you try to simplify it for the the um the actual training experience so some of the stuff i tend to use with with a lot of the guys i coach is um like wages not actually financial wages for sure but you know create a stake make it you know right you've your best is uh, 190 clean jerk your best is 170 so there's a 20 kilo there's a 20 kilo difference here. Like what's the stakes? What's the wager? If this guy beats you by 20 kilos, you know, that creates a pressure that creates a competition environment for, for some of the, some of the athletes. Um, time pressure again, you know, sometimes we'll have a or observed effect. A lot of gyms use this one. It's quite a classic one, but certain sessions coaches will click their fingers and everybody will turn around and look at the one lifter that's lifting. Be like, right. Everybody watch Dave. Dave's lifting and the whole gym will just turn around and have full focus on that person. Um, quick and simple and reactive, because I think that's what you, you then plant that. Once you plant that seed, you can then go over and have that conversation. Say, well, okay. What happened there? What, what made you uncomfortable? What made you miss that lift or what made you hit that lift? You know, you can get both sides of that. Can't you then you get an observed effect whole gym turns around, watches you lift and you, you smash it because the pressure was on. That's positive pressure. You know, you can, you can frame that really well comparison if it goes the other way you can also create a learning experience from that so i think that's um that's where yeah coaching really in the gym comes into it isn't it what's the simplest way you can you can recreate a pressure that doesn't feel staged and um then facilitate the learning that comes off the back of that especially when it comes to mindset stuff 
Yeah, I think that's a really important component because I think um, if, if we're actually honest with ourselves as coaches, if we're not preparing people for that performance pressure, it's actually probably A, a little bit unethical, but B, we've, under, we've completely underserved them because we've led them up to think it's going to be like something else. And then come the day where they're staring the line in the face, this is the first time I've encountered it and I'm expected to do well on this first experience. Whereas if you've experienced all that in the gym, the time pressure, the pressure of people looking at you, watching you, the, you know, the wager of, okay, there's some sort of forfeit here. Then, you know, you've had some little taste of that experience. It's maybe not hundred percent of what you experienced, you know, when you're fully suited and booted and, and on the stage at the British champs, but it's not your first exposure. Whereas I think if we just leave it to chance of whether you turn up mentally on the day or not, we completely underserve our athletes. Oh, 100% agree. I mean, I think it's that that's almost like that old school belief, isn't it? It's like, you know, you hear it occasionally with really old school coaches. They go, oh, they're just not tough enough. Oh, yeah, right. Or they're just not, um, oh, they just they just need to sort their head out. And I just, when I hear those sorts of phrases, I think you might have addressed the fact that this person has a performance anxiety, or you might have identified the fact that this person has a performance anxiety, but what benefit is that? What benefit is telling the person to sort their head out? You're helping in, in no way, shape or form. So I think, yeah, the, the skill is to be able to identify what element of that pressure you, you're observing. And sometimes, and, you know, we're not psychologists at the end of the day, but, you know, maybe you need to, maybe you as a coach sometimes need to visit a psychologist. And say, Athlete A is really struggling with X and I don't get it. Can we break it down? Can you help me break it down and think about it? You know, sometimes that's really useful. Other times you might want to do it with the athlete present and other times you might not. Um, and then I think the most basic form of what sports psychologists often do, I think the term is chunking. I'm not hundred percent sure what it is, but you find the simplest, simplest form of that pressure that they can cope with. And then you apply progressive overload to it in the same way you would to any other training stimulus. And your job as a coach is to provide that. It's not, a psychologist cannot provide that for you. Now, some coaches are very good at doing it by accident. I've noticed, you know, some of our leading leading coaches in the country who've helped people develop over the years and be great performers on a platform. They have some of these natural, and that's for some, to be quite frank, that's where I've picked up some of these ideas from because they do it as part of their journey. Whether they know why they're doing it or not, they do it. So it'll be, they'll have these sort of like, one of the common ones, I've already described one of the common ones, which everybody looks around and turns and looks at lift. The other one is the two lift rule. And that exists in pretty much every weightlifting club in the world that I'm aware of. Um, and that's, you know, you are allowed no more than two misses a session. Why? Because three misses is a bomb out. So if you enter a session with an expectation that you're going to lift certain weights and you miss two, well, that's your session done for the day. You're out just like bombing out. And the, so that's a form of encouraging better and more positive decision-making, because if you know you've only got two misses a session, then you've got to think a little bit more about, what what choices you're going to make and what weights you put on the bar and that's critical because that is the i always describe it as coaches can coaches have some sort of idea what an athlete can lift based on their observations but essentially it's an athlete's decision to make a lift or not and it is an athlete's responsibility to communicate if a coach is not providing them with the weights that they think they're actually capable of lifting and that works both ways sometimes a coach has to for some athletes has to drag them up a bit have to give them more confidence they want to sit in that they want to sit back in that like comfort zone and other times you're like come on come out of that no we're not opening 10 kilos above your maximum that's an absolutely ridiculous concept 
um, because it's it's based on no sort of evidence that you can do that. You've not earned the right. So you've got to find that balance and you've got to, you've got to find a way to navigate that. Mm. I think certainly when it comes to weightlifting, when people who haven't come across it kind of ask me about my experience, I said, you need to have equal combinations of balls and brains. If you're too ballsy, you'll go after stuff that you have no realistic chance of getting. If you're too brainy, as you said, you'll be too conservative, you get six out of six, but you will never get on the platform. So, you know, too, too much of, of, you know, one of those two components will scupper you. And I think you're absolutely right there. It's like, you know, you see this all the time. People people go crazy and do make stupid decisions that in the cold light of day, they're like, I don't know why I did that, that was dumb. But equally, as you said, I think creating that, that pressure within training, like we often watch competitions and see, you know, it, they always do the rounds on Instagram, like incredible saves, you know, it's, you know, a female lifter who's essentially duck walking across the, the platform or someone who's chasing after a lift, all those kind of things. And we, and we kind of subconsciously accept that's the first time that happened. But I think we probably have a sneaky suspicion. They've done that a few times in training where it's been, you know, last lift of the day, you've got to make this. Um, because if you don't know what that feels like to save a lift or to chase a lift under pressure, you, when you need it, it's probably not there. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I think um, Tommy Tommy Yule always used to say, um, we we're talking about power powerlifting actually the other day, and you said like, there's lots of rules in power powerlifting for anybody who's not aware of it. And if you've ever watched the competition, you're probably scratching your head going, why the flipping heck wasn't that a lift? Because you've just watched some bloke smash out 200 kilos uh, and, and in a really impressive manner, but then they get buzzed on the fact that there's a slight rotation in the bar or something that the public cannot see. People like that don't they? People like to see someone have to grind it out. Some sports don't permit it. Weightlifting does permit it, but it's not best practice. So it's like, yeah, how do you, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a similar one, actually. That's an interesting point you raised there. Like there's, there is an element of, of resilience or grit that you need to cultivate in an actual lifting sense. Like why perfect technique is not always the most perfect technique because, um, if you've only got a very narrow range where you can be successful um, when it comes to needing to, you know, there's a gold medal on the line and you've got to grit it out. I mean, that's where Sarah Davies is probably a fantastic example. Like Sarah, um, for anybody that watched, anybody that watched, uh, watched her lift um, at the Europeans, I think one of those lifts, she, she nearly blacked out three times. I watched her swing back, sort of sway back to her heels and I, I was sort of sat there with with Andy Callard next to me. We were grabbing each other by the arms, thinking, "Oh no, she's gonna, she's not gonna make it." And then, you know, she came back to life. We described it, she went to the shadow realm three times, came back to life three times, and still made the lift. Like you, you can't teach that, but you can, you can encourage people to challenge themselves. And I think that's um, a really critical factor. You know, not ridiculously. You know, you see some coaches some sports you know overly challenging you know i think it's that traditional like, you watch you watch um, a, a great film i love it remember the titans but you watch uh, the, the coach in that um drag his boys around um drag his boys around the training park or uh with with the lights on in the middle of the night because they haven't done what he thought they wanted to do you know those are extreme examples that are probably not necessary in the real world um, but you know you can you can create micro versions of that that are much more acceptable and much more healthy and are much more positive. You know another example like Herb Herb Brooks in uh, I love I love a sport movie you might notice but like um, the movie Miracle great movie if you've not seen it give it a watch. About the um, I'm trying to remember which uh, which Olympics it was but basically it's a Russia versus USA um, Olympic hockey match and uh, 
he sort of gets them out after a game and he just has them skate and skate and skate until they're sick. You know, again, similar things. You don't need to create that on a macro scale. That's not necessary. It's unhealthy for the athletes. Someone's going to get hurt. But how might you create that in a micro sense is, again, another interesting one. You know, or just do one more rep today or just add an extra two and a half kilos on. You maybe knew the last one wasn't perfect, but you want to see if they'll accept the challenge and go for it. And you know it's not dangerous because they're fit and healthy and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with them. I think those are the sorts of things that we all need to think a little bit more about sometimes as coaches. Mm-hmm. So what's next on the horizon for you, Stu? What's in the next 18 to, to 24 months? Obviously the, the Olympic Games in some capacity. Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to be an interesting Games. I'm very, very optimistic and hopeful that it's going to go ahead. Um, I think uh, the Tokyo Organising Committee is putting a fantastic amount of work in, and I'm not sure the media is being too fair to them um, in recent weeks um, about about that and, and about the likelihood of the Games going ahead. I think the feeling amongst the camp is that it, it will go ahead, that it will look quite different to what previous Games have looked like. Um we're excited. I think there are some opportunities for us as a team to really capitalise on the last three years of, of progress for the sport. So that's that's uh, definitely a major, major, major point, major milestone for us next. Um, and, and then I'm really looking forward to just building this, uh, building the sport and the, and the progression programme that we've got. We've, we've got three new staff members coming in, which is going to be really exciting and an opportunity for the sport to develop some of its own and hopefully bring in bringing some people from outside to, to sort of help us develop. Um, and yeah, just, just trying to kind of evolve and keep everybody learning and, and keep everybody um, moving in the, in the same direction of travel we have been for the last couple of years is, is probably the biggest challenge for me. Awesome. And maybe if I'm lucky I'll get a dog at some point. <laughs> well, that's the highlight, not the Olympic three. <laughs> so if people want to track you down on social media, et cetera, where can they find you? Oh, the selfish plug moment. Um, Strength Coach SM is my Instagram. I think I don't really have a a, um, a Twitter Twitter account. Um, LinkedIn. I'm Stuart Martin, so you can find me on there as well. Awesome, mate. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting today. I think there's some really great concepts there for for coaches of all sports, thinking about practicing under pressure and how they can add some constraints to make their their practice or training sessions more competition realistic. So thanks for your time and for your insights. It's been a real pleasure to catch up. Pleasure. It's been too long. We shouldn't leave it as long again. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a number of simple things you can do to help support the podcast. First, hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player so you're kept up to date with the latest episode releases. Second, you can leave us a review to help us reach more coaches and parents like yourself. Third, you can send this episode on to a coach or friend to help spread the word. And then fourth, you can find us on social media. Thank